opioids, fish oils, and hibernating bears. How do these relate to the study of heart disease? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment on medical education on the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the University of Chicago, and joining me today is Dr. Paul Izio. He is the professor in the Departments of Anesthesia and Physiology and the Department of Surgery, and the Medtronic professor in the Visible Heart Laboratory at the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dr. Izio, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invite. The Visible Heart Laboratory at the University of Minnesota is a laboratory where a lot of research is being done on studying heart anatomy and physiology. Can you describe a little bit about how this laboratory is set up and what type of work you're doing? Well, it's a broad-ranging lab, and we like to think of our lab of doing basically translational systems physiology. And the primary focus is on muscle, but that muscle can be skeletal muscle or cardiac muscle. And we work at every level in the lab, which is fairly unique in that we'll do everything from human performance work, looking at muscle force assessment in patients with neuromuscular disorders or normal subjects, all the way down to fresh cadaver work in humans, to large animal models for various disease states or cardiovascular dysfunctions, and also looking at skeletal muscle function to organ work, where we do isolated cardiac work, down to tissue-level work, where we'll actually get biopsies from patients from the OR, that skeletal muscle, or when they'll do a transplant at the U, we'll get a portion of the recipient's disease heart, and then all the way down to cellular stuff, where we're doing isolated myocytes and patch clamping. Tell me a little bit about the isolated heart model. How is that type of model set up? Basically, what we're doing in this setup is we're isolating large mammalian hearts and then reanimating them outside the body. And we're doing a lot of methodologies that have been well described in the literature. So back in the 1890s, Oscar Langendorf first described basically reanimating hearts, and he did so with a blood perfusate. And uh, uniquely, what we're doing in our lab is we're doing a clear perfusate, which is a krebs hensolate buffer with various additives, but basically there's glucose and insulin, and then we can also add omega-3 fatty acids, and we can get these hearts to work outside the body in a Langendorf mode, but we can also switch it so that it's fully functional, so it's basically self-perfusing itself and therefore feeding its own coronaries, and then basically we can do this. They'll stay viable for five to seven hours, and then we can put high-resolution endoscopes inside these hearts and visualize all the functional anatomy. So these are beating hearts. Are they beating at the same speed, the same contractility as you would in vivo? Good question. And what's really surprising is that these hearts will all go into a native sinus rhythm. And basically, they'll elicit heart rates of 80 to 90 beats per minute on their own. They'll still respond to catecholamines so that you can increase contractility. And we can get cardiac outputs in these hearts from 5 to 7 liters if we were giving you know, the catecholamines and calcium additives. And so you can get some really nice functional images from these hearts. 
Now, some of the research I know that's being done is seeing how devices interact with tissues. And I understand you've got this clear perfusate, so you can actually take videos of how these devices interact inside the beating heart? Correct. Most interesting aspects of this is because now you can actually visualize the device tissue interface. And you can see how, for example, a catheter or a lead placed through a valve will modify the function of that valve, or we can actually implant valves into the heart, and these could be you know, mechanical valves or tissue valves, or recently we've been doing a deployment of transcatheter-delivered valves into the heart, and then we can see how well they'll seat within the heart and then how they'll interact with the surrounding tissues during function, during the whole complete cardiac cycle, and again, and we can try to upregulate the heart as best we can to really enhance performance. Have you learned anything about some of these device studies that have helped design better devices, better leads, better catheters? Yeah, that's been the collaboration with Medtronic, and for years they've brought in a lot of their prototype devices, and, and we've seen these devices early on, and a lot of these are at market now. But we've also utilized this approach for a training tool, so we've had key opinion leaders from all over the world that are a lot of these individuals doing the first clinical trials will come into the lab and perform the procedures in the visible heart and be able to visualize this. And we can actually complement the whole study by simultaneously doing standardized imaging with fluoroscopy or echocardiography. And so it's a really unique setup. We've also then used this to create educational pieces for physician and resident training on the procedural approaches to putting in new devices. So you can have simultaneous invasive-type hemodynamic parameters as well as non-invasive imaging like echo all in the same setup. Correct. We've gone to the point where we'll have molar pressure catheters, sonomicrometry, flow probes, all within these beating hearts. We've had uh, mapping catheters in there. We've done ablation procedures in these hearts. And all with you can do multiple imaging simultaneously. If you are just joining us, you are listening to a special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm talking to Dr. Paul Izio, and we are discussing the Visible Heart Laboratory at the University of Minnesota. Some of the work you're doing is on cardiac protection, cardiac preconditioning. Can you describe some of that research for us? Well, sure, I can, but I kind of have to set it up as how I got into this, and it's kind of a roundabout way in that I've been doing four studies on patients with neuromuscular disorders for many years, and we actually will use devices that will measure torque, will stimulate the nerves to contract, which stimulate the nerves, which makes the muscles contract, and then we can record the forces. So it's a non-invasive quantitative approach to look at forces. And it was about 10 years ago, I was sitting in my office, I got a phone call from uh, Professor Hank Harlow at the University of Wyoming, and Hank said, hey, Paul, this is Hank Harlow, I've read your research on force assessment, which is always a surprise that someone will read all your papers, but then he said, very intrigued by it, Uh, would you be interested in collaborating with us? We're looking at a population of individuals that do not get weak or elicit weakness, even though they're immobilized for four to six months. I said, sure, that sounds wonderful. And he says, well, we're studying hibernating black bears. 
And I said, fantastic. And I kind of surprised him. But being a Minnesotan, you know, and loving the outdoors, I jumped at the opportunity for this. So we actually started doing this work. And it turns out that these bears do indeed do not have any muscle loss. And it turns out they have a whole cascade of hormones called hibernation induction triggers that'll circulate during the winter, presumably, and induce this hibernation state actually provide ischemic protection to the vital organs and minimize muscle protein loss and therefore strength. And then we started looking into this, and it turns out that one of the properties of these circulating hormones is their delta opioid agonists. And these delta opioid agonists are thought to be agents that will confer protection against ischemic damage not only of the brain and skeletal muscles, but the heart as well. And so then we began looking at this within various animal models in our lab. And one of the things that we did is we applied these delta opioids to an ischemic model where we'll do an occlusion of the LAD, and then we'll look at ischemia reperfusion injury. And one of the things that we did see with applying this is that the delta opioids reduced infarct size by 50% in this model. And so then we've expanded this work to look at delta opioids and their potential for allowing for prolonged preservation of the heart and the ischemic period. And we've also done some tissue bath work in our lab with isolated trabeculae from human hearts as well, trying to make this all translational. So it sounds like there is a protective mechanism, if you will, through the opioid system that can protect the heart when it becomes ischemic. Uh, Would this be true using opioids like morphine, for example? Would that help with some of these ischemic times in the heart? That's a good question and one that we actually investigated. It turns out that morphine is what we kind of consider a a dirty agent in that it actually will activate mu, kappa, and delta opioid receptors, and it masks the positive benefits of activating the delta receptors by activating kappa receptors. And so we actually did a study that if you just gave morphine alone, there were no protective benefits, but if you were able to give morphine and a kappa blocker or a kappa antagonist, then basically you conferred protection. So we're giving the wrong opioid to our patients who come into the ER having severe chest pain and having a myocardial infarction. Well, you're giving a a neutral agent. You're not benefiting, but you're not hurting them either. If you were just to give a kappa, you may actually worsen the situation. But, you know, the goal is to try to make this translation in the future and and figure out if we can look at this pharmacology and, and then really provide the right opioids at the right time. Now, I understand you're doing some work with lipids as well in preconditioning. How do the lipids and the omega-3s fit into this whole story? Well, the omega-3s have been implicated for years, and, and there were a lot of epidemiologic studies where they've looked at different populations throughout the world and showed that you know individuals that have a high omega-3 diet basically have less incidence of heart disease. And using our animal model, we thought, well, we could also investigate the omega-3 fatty acids. One of the unique properties, though, of the omega-3s, if you start giving them in high concentrations intravenously, they'll actually be hemolytic. So that might be a negative thing. So the thought was that we could do this basically in the pericardial space and so do more a targeted delivery. 
And so we recently published an article where we were able to deliver omega-3 fatty acids to pericardial space in our ischemia reperfusion model in the swine. And we were able to show that during this ischemia, we reduced arrhythmias by 50% and subsequently reduced infarct sizes by 50%. And so our lab is continuing on with this line of investigation and trying to look at more long-term follow-up studies. Well, I want to thank Dr. Izio for being our guest. We have been discussing the Visible Heart Laboratory at the University of Minnesota, which is a unique laboratory for heart research and heart education. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and you have been listening to a special segment on medical education on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or your office. And thank you for listening.